welcome to another episode in the special series, Travels with Torpy. This episode was filmed in the Flaming Gorge National Recreation Area on the Utah-Wyoming border, and it reflects on a book that I just finished reading and a flight that I just took in three different areas. The first is the uncertainty of the legacies that each of us may leave. The second is the duality of much of our innovation and advancement in technology. And the third is the perspectives, the implicit perspectives and assumptions um, that we have in how we see the world and reality around us. I hope you enjoy uh, the discussions. And if you like this episode, please don't forget to subscribe, share, and like it. And check out the rest of Rethinking with Alex Torpy on YouTube, Instagram, or wherever you listen to podcasts, or at RethinkingWithAlexTorpy.com. Enjoy. Okay, everyone, welcome to another episode. Um, So this episode is a reflection on three things. Um, The first is about the legacies that we leave. Um, and our understandings or lack of understandings about them and the sort of guaranteed uncertainties about the future. The second is about how air travel is really a sort of perfect example of the duality of our technology and advancements coming with incredible benefit, but also some really high costs. Um, And the third is the scale of the world and our implicit assumptions caused by perspectives that we don't realize we have. So lots of fun stuff here. And for those of you that are watching um, on YouTube or on Instagram, um, I am coming to you uh, from the um, Utah-Wyoming border on the Green River, the Flaming Gorge National Recreation Area that you can see uh, a little bit in the uh, background here, a really beautiful um, area here. Okay. Um, Now, the reason I'm actually doing this episode um, and recording this right now is that I recently took a flight back um, from Utah, from Salt Lake City to upstate New York, um, to attend a memorial service for my grandparents um, on my mother's side, who died late in um, 2019, really just a few months apart, actually. Um, And if you'll allow me just for a minute, um, before we get into things, I actually just want to say a few words about... um, the two of them. Um, and so B and Norm Title, uh, both from Brooklyn, New York. Um, and in fact, um, when I was briefly living in Brooklyn uh, many moons ago, um, for a couple months, by total coincidence, I ended up moving into a place, um, I believe it was uh, Broadway and Park. Um, and I learned afterwards that it was literally two blocks away from the very house that my grandfather was actually literally born in, in 1923. Um, both of them lived a very long life, um, dying at age 96. They were married for 75 years, um, and they lived fairly active and engaged lives pretty close up until the end. Um, and I'm going to show a couple photos on here for those of you watching this by video, um, just so you can see them, but also because I feel like both of them, or maybe everybody, you know, like in the 40s, they look straight out of some, like, you know, superstar movie out of the 40s. Um, it's kind of amazing going through some of those old photos. Now, they left a considerable legacy behind, not just of family size. Um, there were 26 of us uh, spanning three generations when we counted when we were all together. Um but they left a legacy in each of their children and grandchildren. And I suspect will be the case as they start to grow up, the great grandchildren as well. 
Um, they left this legacy a pretty deeply instilled ethic of hard work, um, of justice, of making a plan and sticking to it, um, as long as it was a plan that grandma approved of, um, and a fierce care not just for oneself and for one's family, but for the world around us, the communities and world around us that we live in. Um, and that ethic and that ideology is clear in all of my family members and cousins. Um, now, my grandparents did not grow up, neither of them grew up um, with much in the way of money. Um, both of their parents immigrated to the U.S., um, but they worked very hard as public school teachers and administrators uh, and to raise their children and grandchildren with more opportunity and support that they had growing up, which they were able to successfully do. Um, and so this doesn't really capture it, but for those of you who don't know them, you know, maybe this gives you a little hint of one half of where I came from. Um, and if you know me well enough to be on the receiving end of endless, terrible dad jokes, you can thank uh, Grandpa Norman for all of those. Um, I think that was genetic. Um, so it was nice to uh, get together with everybody. We weren't able to do that last year and kind of give them um, the proper memorial. Um, okay, so back to this episode. Now, this is not something that many of you may know, but I used to have a really terrible fear of flying. Um, I have some issues with heights, though being on top of mountains usually doesn't bother me too much. But I had a very hard time flying as a kid, or crossing bridges, or being in tall buildings, or riding on a ski lift. And actually, I'll admit something that only a very small number of people know, um, which is that for a few months that I did some snowboarding in middle school before I landed tailbone first on some ice, um, believe it or not, I actually walked up the mountain um, instead of taking the ski lift because I didn't want to go on the ski lift. Um, I eventually did because that became a little tiring, um, but that was, um, that was where my head was at. Um, and actually, after we had flown to Florida a few times to visit the aforementioned uh, grandparents at a much younger age, um, at a certain point, I could just no longer bring myself to get on a plane. And regrettably and miraculously, my family mostly honored that. And we actually took two road trips down there from New Jersey, which we could do a whole episode on that. Suffice to say, we did stop at south of the border. <laughs> uh, now, it would be many years, well over a decade before I would fly again. So fast forward to 2011 getting elected mayor in South Orange when I was 23. You know, I did rounds on various news and kind of talk shows and had been invited to speak at a number of conferences and events. Um, one of them was in Los Angeles to speak and participate in a social media conference. And a shout out to Filiberto uh, Gonzalez, if you're listening. Um, and I had a bit of a dicey issue to sort out. I spent days, may maybe weeks, attempting to figure out how to take a train or a bus from New Jersey to Los Angeles. I was totally sure I would get lots of work done, visit and learn about some great American cities on the way, and maybe eat some, meet some interesting people. Now, fortunately, I have friends who call me out when needed, something that I think is very important, and they told me in no uncertain terms that I was being an idiot. Um, and that taking a bus cross-country would not actually be a pleasant or productive experience. And then it turns out that trains were really expensive um, and, and may not have been that much better. Um, I couldn't 
bring myself to buy the plane tickets. And a friend who had a similar issue with flying actually sent me a CD disc. Uh, that's how long ago this was. Um, and it was like a sort of meditation thing that was meant to help you conquer your fear of flying. So I listened to it one day and I promptly fell asleep. Um, now, just because something is correlated doesn't mean it's causal. And I honestly don't know if that CD is what ultimately got me over the hump or it was the sort of intense research I did into the wee hours of a few nights um, on the safety of various forms of travel, measuring incidents by number of trips per number of miles per number of travel hours and all sorts of things and realizing in no uncertain terms that you are probably safer on a plane than eating fast food or being a pedestrian in a city. And ultimately, after a few false starts, I was able to buy the tickets and do it. Um, and a few weeks later, amidst a flurry of very emotional emails and text messages to family members and friends, wishing them all the best in a world that I was sure I was not going to be in anymore, um, I boarded and made it out there and had a really great time. Now it's different. Um, uh, although there are risks to flying, I really enjoy it, especially the views that you get not just of the landscapes and the earth, which is pretty amazing to see things from that angle, um, or the sun rising over the horizon, but you get a really interesting perspective on how we build and develop and how populations grow in different areas, um, especially at night when you can see the sort of geometry of human development so clearly by the lights on the ground is really pretty interesting, although sometimes frustrating because there's a lot of terrible development out there. Um, but the reality is that there's considerably greater risks to many other things that I do in my life, whether driving a car, riding a motorcycle, riding a bicycle, being a pedestrian, drinking tap water, hiking in the deep woods, or just living alone. Um, and when you've got on something like 700 or so emergency 911 medical calls, you start to get a sense of really what is risky and what isn't. And that does kind of put things into perspective a bit. Anyway. Enough about my experience here. Let's talk about flying. So this is all partially on my mind, not just because of the flight that I was on, but because I was just finished reading a really, truly amazing and insightful book called One Summer by Bill Bryson, who I might actually say is one of my favorite authors, thanks in large part to the book A Walk in the Woods, which is also a cool movie. Now, I read that book, which is largely about two friends hiking the Appalachian Trail for the first time um, when I was traveling in Canada in January, maybe about four or five years ago. Um, and if you don't know Bill Bryson's writing, you should check it out. And Walk in the Woods is phenomenal, especially for anyone who likes the outdoors. But he is just so funny. Um, and I'm reading this book as I'm traveling around in Nova Scotia. And, you know, I'm on the bus. I'm in bars. I'm in coffee shops reading. And I'm just laughing out loud. And on a number of occasions, and I read a lot as I travel and in public and in bars and stuff. And what, this had never happened to me where people would come up to me and they were like, I've never seen someone laugh so much at a book before. What the hell are you reading? Um, and so it was really great. And anyway, he wrote this book one summer that reflects on a really, truly, incredibly bizarre period of American life in 1927. Uh, this involved things like some really weird crimes and um, that people became obsessed with and post-World War I political dyna dynamics. 
the inconceivable performance and success of Babe Ruth and then Lou Gehrig, the legalization and popularization of boxing, prohibition and organized crime in Al Capone, massive flooding in the South and the political legacies of people like Herbert Hoover and Calvin Coolidge, the creation of the Model T and Henry Ford's brilliant but also insane and anti-Semitic legacy, the growth of radio, the preliminary invention of television, some really horrible race and ethnic and immigration dynamics, and most relevantly to this, really the beginning of American aviation supremacy um, and Charles Lindbergh's flight across the Atlantic and then his subsequent rise and fall from grace. So let's set the stage a little bit. Now, this is not a thorough accounting of Lindbergh or any of the number of other people who were competing for the Orteg Prize um, that the Spirit of St. Louis flight eventually won in his flight across the Atlantic from Long Island to Paris. Um, so there's lots of other people who are doing this, but try and remember that at this time in 1927, so Lindbergh is flying across the Atlantic and almost all of these transatlantic flights that were competing for this prize or were doing it for other reasons all had multiple people. You know, they had a pilot, they had a navigator, um, and sometimes an additional person because things break dur and you have to fix things during it. Navigating, which I'll come back to in a second. I mean, it's just incredible. And Lindbergh did all of this himself. Um, and these, this is in a plane uh, that was basically specialty built for this. There's no luxuries, no conveniences. The cockpit was so small, he couldn't even stretch his legs all the way out on this 30-hour flight. There's no satellite. There's no air traffic controllers. There's no radioing and understanding where you are and being able to talk to people as you're going. You're navigating by a map and by a compass and by a stopwatch so that you can time when you're taking your measurements. And that's how he got from Long Island to Paris. Incredible. And in a plane that has no forward visibility, um, which apparently made the takeoff and the landing rather difficult. You can't even see where you're going, really. Um, everything was fuel tanks and essential equipment. And the weight reduction was such an intense process that he even cut the ends off his maps. Um, and what I understand, I believe he had basically a couple ham sandwiches, like a gallon of water, and a bucket. Um, although I'm not sure he used the sandwiches or the bucket. I think he was just sort of focused the whole time, although I could be mixing that up with one of the other flights. And anyway, so he gets across... Uh, the Atlantic in this kind of contraption, unpressurized cabin, right, um, himself, navigating, again, map, stopwatch, compass, uh, kind of really insane um, to think about what flying must have been like without radars and satellites and all of the kind of infrastructure that we use today. And let's try to compare that. I mean, even flying in economy with no legroom, you know, it's really an impossible difference to really conceive of. The comfort and the convenience and the safety and the certainty of the whole experience and the sheer volume of how much air travel actually is happening. So my first reflection is that although I'm sure that Lindbergh and others who were doing this at the time knew to some degree that they were setting in motion a series of events um, that would advance and develop, as I'm sure the Wright brothers and other people did before them. 
I honestly doubt whether they could really conceive of what this would end up with now or what it could look like in the future. And in fact, I should have also mentioned one of the things that I think that may have helped me get over my fear of flying was actually getting stuck in traffic one day, although this happened many days, on 78 near Newark Airport. And I'm sitting there and I'm just watching plane after plane take off. It seemed like it was every minute there was a plane taking off. And I was just like amazed and transfixed at the volume of this. And I thought to myself, this is happening at hundreds or thousands of airports across the world right now, all day, every day, almost without incident. Um, and that sort of helped convince me of the safety too. And then if we look up the numbers, it turns out that there are almost 50,000 flights per day, moving almost 3 million people per day in the United States alone. At any given time in the U.S., there are approximately 5,000 planes in the air. Worldwide, there is a plane taking off approximately every one second. That is an insane volume. And the incidents tend to be major news items and are incredibly rare. Um, compare that with driving, where about 100 people die per day on roads in the U.S. alone. That's like a small, medium-sized plane crash every day by driving. Flying is pretty damn safe, um, and it's incredibly widespread. The volume is really, really significant. So the scale of this is truly astounding. And yeah, there's some delays and some problems that we'll come back to in a minute, but we have to take a moment to really reflect on how far it's come and how unbelievably good it is. And just kind of how insane this is all it all is compared to what the Lindberghs of the world were thinking a hundred years ago. People flying in planes with no forward visibility, navigating by maps, uh, an unpressurized cabin. And a lot of these planes, the exoskeleton, the plane was not, it's not a metal on the outside or fiberglass or something. It was fabric. I get nervous at that tiny little hole in the window on the airplane and in the airplane windows, and these people were flying across the Atlantic Ocean in an unpressurized plane covered in fabric, going to the bathroom in a bucket. Um, true pioneers, really, in every sense of the word. And so, you know, the first reflection is, and I think actually, you could almost say this about my grandparents as well, we don't really know the full scope about the legacies that we're going to be leaving. Did the Wright brothers know what things would look like a hundred years later? Did George Washington and the founding fathers know what their revolution would turn into and the inconceivably significant impact the United States would have on shaping the world, especially in the last century? Did Rosa Parks know what her act of civil disobedience would lead to? Did scientists and academics trying to connect data sets via network connection know what the internet would look like a couple decades later? Did Galileo know what we would do with his discoveries? What about Newton or Copernicus? I really don't think so. In fact, I think a lot of these people and uh, these people and types of people like that 
they were isolated, uh, oppressed, exiled, or laughed out of the room while they were doing the work they were doing, only for their accomplishments to really take off or be appreciated or start to have an impact years or decades or sometimes centuries later. And so this is a reflection and a reminder for those of you trying to solve original problems, working on novel solutions, or pushing against the grain in your work. Do not be dissuaded if your idea hasn't changed the world yet. You really don't know how things will unfold. And in many cases, how things unfold can rapidly change. So that Charles Lindbergh guy we were talking about who became easily the most famous and most admired person on the planet in a matter of a day or two, whose job basically for the following year was to be full-time in parades, at awards dinner, shaking hands. He had days named after him, streets named after him, museums named after him. Uh, I mean, it was, it was incredible how widespread he was admired and appreciated. And he wrote some really problematic, really problematic op-ed that, um, showed some of his really weird opinions on things and anti-Semitism. Um, and he quickly fell from public grace, going from easily the most famous and well-liked person in history on the planet, who no longer really commanded much, if any, public respect for his opinions on those things. Doesn't take away from his aviation legacy, but his place in American society as a hero, as a complete un- uh, adulterated hero um, vanished. And these things change, change in ways that we really can't predict. We don't know. Um, success is not a linear march of just everything getting a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better. It probably no, holds no real consistent pattern. Um, and so just keep that in mind for those of you out there uh, involved in these things. I've read so many stories of scientists, inventors, philosophers, and thinkers who died in ridicule, sometimes imprisoned or exiled, not thinking their work had any impact, but that their ideas and work ended up reshaping an entire field of study, an entire ideology, a nation, or the world many years later. And I think that this actually provides us another kind of related reflection, which is why are we doing what we're doing? Is it for a legacy, one that we can enjoy the spoils of? Or is it for a legacy that we may never even see or know exists? I think reflecting on that question can provide some really interesting insight into the things that are motivating any of us to do what we do and how we validate ourselves. If you never know the impact of your work, but it changes a society decades or centuries after your death, would you be happy with that? Or do you need to know the impact of your work for, it to, for you to be happy? Just some shower thoughts for you. Um, okay, so let's move on to the second reflection. Um, this is about the duality of much of what we do and the almost guaranteed nature of this duality, at least in our sort of current advancement ideology based on this type of human exceptionalism that we'll come back to more in some future episodes. Now, this episode is not a thorough deep dive into the good and bad sides of air travel or transit more broadly, but rather just some reflections um, that were on my mind as I was traveling and how I think this is a very good example that we can use to help us remember that most things, especially the things that we think are really great, 
often have downsides that we usually don't talk about. And this is in part because our culture seems to increasingly want to make things all good or all bad. A dynamic, I think, exacerbated by an oppositional two-party political system that benefits from categorizing things in that way, too. We don't really have the space for nuance or complexity, and or at least we're losing that space. And, well, part of the goal of this podcast and series is to reclaim that a little bit. Because um, that's where I believe things are the closest to truth, whatever that may be. Um, that nuance to me actually sounds like a real party, not absolutism. So there are some incredible things that we already talked about a bit related to air travel. Air travel, and additionally, air travel has shrunk the size of this planet in a way that people hundreds of years ago could have never possibly imagined. It's made us a truly global civilization, for better or for worse. Now, relatively speaking, air travel is somewhat affordable and allows not all, but broad classes of people to move about from nation to nation in hours or days, rather than literally weeks or months, and which previously came at extreme expense and extreme likelihood of dying from some terrible disease or violence. I'm sure for the other millennials that are listening, we've all played Oregon Trail and died from dysentery, and that was just traveling across one continent by land. Um, Travel used to be very time-consuming, very dangerous, and very expensive, and we've really flattened that um, a lot, not just with like the interstate highway system in the United States, um, but with air travel globally. It's allowed cultural exchanges and a global democratizing of ideas and information that we've only continued to increase um, since the advent of the internet and social media. And that's pretty cool. And for those of you who've grown up in a world of air travel, uh, it's hard to remember that this has only been the last 70 years or so. And before that, civilizations were separated by these chasms. Now we pay a bit of money, go through ridiculously inefficient security, buy terrible and expensive food and sit in a kind of cramped seat, and then we're somewhere else on the planet. Uh, The world became our backyard, um, but it wasn't always so, and it isn't without downside. Um, Now, the following are not the only downsides, but they are three that's just been on my mind um, uh, as I was was taking this uh, trip. So I just wanted to share them. But again, not a comprehensive analysis here. The first is how airports are designed. The second is the environmental impact of flying. And the third is air travel's role as a disease vector and our increased susceptibility to natural and human-made biological threats. All right, so first, uh, most airports are designed really terribly, especially in the U.S. Uh, They mash people together going in different directions, have terrible security practices and precautions with giant open spaces that could never be evacuated in a timely fashion if an emergency were to actually occur. They're filled with consumer crap that just encourage people to spend more money on pointless things. It's filled with a lot of junk food, don't usually have a lot of local assets, um, often don't even have key information needed to help people move efficiently around. They don't have kind of outdoor green spaces, unless maybe you're in Singapore. Now, this is all getting a little better, very slowly, as some airports get renovated. But the focus, even in these renovations, um, in these airports, as with many transit center renovations, um, the Oculus, uh, the transportation center, or the World Trade Center being a great example of by far one of the worst designs transit stations that I've ever 
been to or seen. I may do a whole episode about that one day. Um, but the focus, like there, the focus on a lot of transit center renovations um, is on bringing foot traffic of the travelers into and past stores that sell stuff so that more money can be charged in leases to those stores and go back to the governments that build the transit centers. I mean, if it helps to sort of conceptualize it, I mean, this is the conception, the ideology present in most of the planning, um, most of the planning ideologies. These places are malls, but with guaranteed foot traffic because of the travelers. Now, I've been to airports where you literally have to walk through stores to get to your gates. That's the focus, which means that actually getting you quickly from one part of the airport to the other is not actually the goal because that would reduce the foot traffic to the stores and may then reduce the rent that those stores pay to be there. So beyond that, and this is actually one of my biggest pet peeves, um, I don't believe I've ever seen a single bathroom that allows people to walk in and out of the bathroom without literally bumping into each other. There are these pointlessly narrow twists and turns in the entrance that you can't navigate, especially carrying luggage in an airport, two people wide. No directional signage so that even the ones that have two openings, the people don't enter one and exit the other. They're entering an exit on both sides. And then people come in and the toilets, sinks, and dryers are laid out in a way that forces people to cross paths multiple times even though the agenda for someone going into a bathroom is pretty obvious and probably pretty consistent. You've got soda machines every five feet, but only one water fountain for the entire terminal. There are windows, but there's no greenery, no fresh air or elements of nature that would help provide a more calm and restful experience for people that, that, that are engaged in something that can often be very chaotic, confusing, and stress-inducing. Now, there's tons of stores to buy expensive stuff, but there's no library. There's no social or health or government services. Plenty of airports have seating specifically designed to prevent people from sleeping. A very stupid goal, especially if you've ever connected in an airport overnight. Now, most airports do have lots of plugs and free Wi-Fi, but even 10 years ago, when I was traveling a lot more, a lot of airports still only had paid Wi-Fi, and people had to fight over like a few outlets. I've actually carried power strips before, so that I can plug in a power strip, and then now we can all use the one outlet that's available for people. Um, now, airports could, and there's a few that are definitely going in this direction, I think Singapore is a good example, that make the experience more calming and relaxing and healthy, rather than more expensive and more wasteful and more stress-inducing. And let's not even get into the parking and driving. It's great getting yelled at by a transit cop because you're waiting to pick someone up, but aren't allowed to wait. So now you have to drive around in loops in the airport or go sit on the shoulder of the nearest highway because, yeah, that's somehow safer for all involved and doesn't add to the congestion and confusion. Okay, next, the environmental impact of flying is not great. Um, it's a little complicated to get to like an exact number, and I have a few links in the description about this, but the impact on the greenhouse gases from individual flights is estimated to be five or ten times greater than traveling by train, for example. Um, and this is measured by the emissions of carbon, and it's worse than most personal vehicles. And because most of these emissions are deposited directly into the upper parts of the atmosphere, the stratosphere, um, to get all technical, um, 
now there's actually a benefit of that because you're the, the pollution isn't being bre breathed in by people at ground level but it's also worse because you're depositing it right into this more sensitive part of the environment but the emissions aren't the only cost. It's a big part of it. But it's the entire supply chain, the manufacturing and sales of the planes, the construction and infrastructure of the airports, service crews and towers, and the reliance of the whole industry on fossil fuels. Um, and I don't see that changing to battery or electric anytime soon. And the thing that always and still bugs me is the huge waste of one-time use products in airports and on planes. Multiple garbage bags are filled up with cups and bottles and containers and things like that on every flight just from serving you some water or juice or coffee or something. Um, flights with meals are even worse. And now this obsession over sanitizing surfaces often comes in the form of one-time use packets. We generate a lot of solid waste for just a couple hour flight. Though to be fair, some of that's generated by car travel too if people stop in rest stops, but it seems to be much worse on planes. Um, now, and actually, and here's, this is just my own personal opinion, I think there's a chance that the supremacy of air travel as a means for medium to long distance uh, travel may actually phase out as petroleum-based fuels be become uh, less available, more expensive, and may eventually, it will eventually likely run out. We don't barely have cell phone batteries that can last through a day. Our battery technology is still underqualified to provide the kind of power we really need um, to move a car long distances, though it's getting there and there's been a lot of advancements, especially with lithium ion technology. But to get from that point to moving a 747 across the world, I don't know if our battery technology is going to get there before fuel prices make flying too expensive or before petroleum actually runs out. And there's different ways to create flying machines, right? For example, there will be more smaller planes that use solar and wind currents to fly almost more the way that birds do, rather than forcing the machine through the air with jet engines. But I don't expect that kind of flying to be acceptable to broad audiences. And the trains, on the other hand, are much easier to move towards being powered by renewable energy. And I think there's a chance maybe, that decades from now, planes could have seen their heyday, actually, and we'll start moving back to moving um, across longer distances on trains, maybe maglev rail systems that are powered by solar or other renewable energy sources, and hopefully more on tracks that allow us to reduce the environmental impact of building things on the ground through wilderness areas. Some airlines offer carbon offsets, but I think that's a minimal impact. Is it worth the environmental cost to have air travel? You know, it probably is. It's such an incredible technology and innovation that's really changed the world in so many ways, but it would be better, like with all of our activities that produce greenhouse gases, if we did more stuff on the other end that helps mitigate the negative effects rather than do things that make it worse on both ends. So rather than cutting down trees while we're producing more greenhouse gases, why don't we make a concerted effort to reforest areas with trees that are happy to gobble up and store carbon that would otherwise be released into our atmosphere fear and contribute to warming the planet. I'd like to see some airlines offer commitments to reforest and plant trees as a way to offset their environmental impact. That would be pretty cool. Maybe there is. I haven't seen it. Um, okay. So the third, um, the third piece here is a reflection on flying while wearing face masks, which is a weird thing. Now, I spent a lot of time when I was getting my master's degree at John Jay College of Criminal Justice uh, studying emergency management and actually terrorism. 
Now, there's a truly phenomenal book called The Great Influenza by John Barry that recounts in impressive and amazing detail the lead up to and response and recovery of the 1918 H1N1 flu. Now, we studied a number of other incidents in these classes too, but that one we spent probably the most time on, and it really stuck with me the most for some reason. Now, I've reread that John Barry tome of a book before, uh, since then, and it's pretty frightening. And remember, this is 1918. Charles Lindbergh was maybe in, I don't know, middle school or elementary school or something. There was no air travel. The disease, the H1N1 strain of the flu, infected 500 million people worldwide and killed somewhere between 30 and 50 million people. That's the entire population of New Jersey three or five times over. Now, forgetting that there are some people who wouldn't mind New Jerseyans to be wiped from the face of the earth, and to those people, I give you the Garden State salute, um, try to imagine the scale of that. 30 to 50 million people dead. That's the entire population of Spain or of Colombia, well more than the entire population of Canada. But wait, there's more. We need to adjust for population growth to really understand it in today's terms, right? As with many things that often get measured with a static number, without context, such as money spent or number of people, the numbers are sort of meaningless if they're not a function of the total population and tracking that over time. So that number, let's use the 50 million, happened at a time when there were about 1.8 billion people living on the planet and about 100 million people living in the U.S., in 2021, there are about 7.9 billion people on the planet and about 330 million people in the U.S. So let's adjust for the size of population so that we can understand how many people died in today's terms. About 2.7% of people in the world died from the H1N1 flu in 1918. If that same percent of the world were to die today, it would be about 213 million people think about the scale of that. You thought COVID was bad. Imagine if over 200 million people died globally from a disease. And that, that number doesn't even account for the existence of air travel, right? This is just accounting for population growth since then. And that's a number based on the H1N1 flu spreading by ship and by train, not by air travel, and we responded to COVID in a really embarrassingly bad fashion, especially considering the amount of money that we put into our public safety and emergency apparatus in this country and how many restrictions and sacrifices we all make, whether by choice or not, in the name of safety. Democrats and Republicans failed, as did many of us. We were exceptionally lucky that this disease has less than a 1% mortality rate. We are impossibly and inconceivably underprepared for responding to a broader or larger type of threat like this, even though we've had a few close calls, COVID being only the most recent. But what have we actually learned from these things? Not really that much, unfortunately. And in fact, Unfortunately, I might argue that I think we may have backtracked due to COVID because now politicians and media and all of us, we are to blame here too, allowed ourselves to become so divided about the response to this that there's no longer a unified front of what should or shouldn't have been done to do a better job, even though there is data and evidence to suggest what should have been done, regardless of how you personally feel about those things one way or the other. And what that division means 
is that when it comes time for major systemic changes that could be put in place to help us the next time around, they probably will not get enough support to actually move forward, especially the things that might require a really big investment. And that's kind of scary. And these things were all caused most likely not certainly, but most likely by nature, not by intentional actors harnessing biological agents um, to cause harm. But that is a much, much bigger threat than you realize, I hate to say. And our security infrastructure is woefully inadequate um, uh, for this. Um, it's embarrassingly ineffective at doing what it's supposed to be doing, even with the more traditional threats. Um, again, something we studied at John Jay and something that was really kind of scary on transit systems. There have been incidents like this, um, and we have almost no infrastructure in place to prevent those things from happening, um, at the point, um, where the, where the incident would happen. Um, so now if you really want a reason to have to change your underpants, I not only suggest that John Barry book on the 1918 flu, but I also suggest a podcast that I have linked in the description here um, that was a conversation on Sam Harris's podcast about the growing and incredible risks of synthetic genetic sequencing getting into the wrong hands, something that seems almost certainly likely to happen over the coming decades. Um, there's a lot in there, and frankly, none of it is good. Now, we will be faced with far worse catastrophes than covid unimaginably worse, whether biological or chemical or radiological. And we will be highly underprepared for it, and it will cause much more devastation than COVID did or that we can really imagine. So thank you for joining Peaceful Bedtime Stories with Alex. Um, but seriously, if these things make you nervous, that's good. They should. Um, that means that you're engaging with the subject matter. There are a growing number of clinicians and scientists, actually, who believe that Many anxiety and depressive-related disorders come not from some sort of abnormal mental process, but rather from actually engaging with the realities of the world around us. I am in full agreement with this theory, and I think that we have a lot of work to do before we get to a place where we can justify not being stressed or anxious about our present and future. So that's the third downside to air travel, is that I think it is um, it provides a disease vector that we are just totally unprepared to actually deal with um, in the coming years and decades. And the last reflection, and I'll make it a quick one to wrap up here, is just about the scale of the world and the difference of the size based on how we are able to travel across it. And I've reflected on this a little in other episodes, just sort of how different things look or feel when you're driving versus walking, for example. How much bigger the world seems when you're walking on it for many miles or days at a time. And how much bigger it must have seemed when that was the only thing available. And this sort of hit me actually when I made it to the West Coast um, officially in the Redwoods Forest. And so I'll go to a quick clip of that. All right, so I'm coming to you from uh, Jurassic Park, or more accurately, the uh, Redwood National and State Park in California. Um, and the scale here, I mean, this is all truly incredible. It's just one of a million of uh, these giant trees and it's just incredibly beautiful uh, and lush. And for those of you, especially on the East Coast, you may not know that most of the forests um, that we see around us are actually very new. Almost all of that was cut down, you know, over the prior 100, 150, 200 years for agriculture, for logging, 
Um, and these old growth forests, which never have been cut down, are really truly remarkable. And it's just amazing because not everything is what it seems, right? Not every forest seems like it was a farm 100 years ago. Um, it's just one of the reasons why it's so important to understand the context of where we came from um, to think about better how we can go into the future. So, you know, hashtag history. So you guys know there's a whole other uh, ocean over here on the uh, west coast? Wow, amazing. Um, now, I've flown out here before, um, but I've never driven across the country. And um, having walked the last four or five miles of it and just kind of coming upon the, uh, the ocean here, I mean, it's really incredible. You know, I felt that way walking before on the Appalachian Trail or on other hikes. You know, when you're on foot or something like that, the scale of everything is just so different than what we're used to, flying and driving or whatever. I can't imagine what it would have been like to cross, you know, distance like that or see the end of a continent that you didn't even know was there and not know what was out there hundred, hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago, um, or even to cross it today, you know, by bicycle or on foot. Um, it really puts everything in perspective a little bit. So I'm gonna enjoy uh, some time out here uh, a little bit. And, uh, and then I'll enjoy my hike back to the other side, getting to check out all the redwoods again. Our context about the size of a town or a state or a country or the world is a direct and implicitly created perspective based on our ability to travel on or around it. Um, so, for example, there's a section of the Appalachian Trail in Maine called the 100 Mile Wilderness. There are two entry points on either end of that trail 100 miles apart. And that means that you have to have food and water, etc. for approximately 10 days. Um, and you're somewhere between 1 and 50 miles by foot to the nearest exit or entrance. Um, but that distance, covered in 8 to 10 days of hiking, is covered in, I don't know, minutes um, uh, while flying. But imagine again a world without flying. How different all this would feel to not even have the conception of travel of that distance to even be possible. And this is an example of an implicit assumption buried so deep in how you process the world around you that you don't even realize that it's a layer or a filter at all. But understanding these sorts of assumptions is actually pretty crucial because we actually have a lot of them and they make a really big difference in how we view things happening around us. And this is kind of an easy one and kind of a fun one because the difference between driving across the country just now, which included a whole bunch, which included hiking and various challenges and detours, and then just zip flying back across, I mean, is really kind of mind bending. Um, and driving itself on interstate highways is already an incredible uh, flattener and reducer of distance. Um, and so just uh, try to conceptualize that, um, what that would have felt like then, what it feels like now, and that that perspective that you have now isn't a reality. It is a filter on the reality around you and that we have dozens or hundreds or thousands of those sorts of filters that are sort of precognitive. We're not even really thinking about them or often aware of them, but they massively change how we see things around us. Okay, so, you know, I hope these thoughts don't actually keep you up at night, um, although that's actually not sort of true um, because I, you know, many of us don't actually have the time set aside to allow our mind to wander and think. Bedtime is sort of one of those times that, that can happen, and I think for a lot of us, it happens a lot um, at that time, though that's not really the best time for it. So if you have time set aside, uh, that's great, and I hope these thoughts can sort of percolate a little bit. 
And these reflections, the first, on the uncertainty of the legacies we leave, especially for people engaged in work that pushes against the grain. The second, about the duality of much of our advancements and technology and the specific risks with air travel in the future. And the third, the scale of the world and our numerous implicit assumptions that dictate how we see reality around us. I think provide some interesting things to think about. Um, and we all have a number of ways to engage with this kind of content, right? In personal ways, in our work lives, in our political or community lives. Um, I'm doing a lot of that thinking out here as I'm traveling, and I hope that you get the opportunity to do a little bit of that too. So till next time, thanks for joining me on Rethinking, and please reach out to me and let me know your thoughts. I love hearing the stories um, that people have, their own reflections from some of these episodes, especially as I'm traveling. So keep those coming to me. Feel free to email me or contact me on social media, um, and uh, I'll talk to you all soon. Hey, everyone. Alex here. If you want to find show notes, sources, and more information, you can do so in the YouTube description or online on my website at rethinkingwithalextorpy.com. Please don't hesitate to reach out to me with any questions or feedback at alex at rethinkingwithalextorpy.com or on social media. And if you liked what you heard, please consider leaving a positive review, subscribing, liking, or sharing this episode with a friend. Thanks again for listening.